We've got two verses from the Old Testament to start with. And it's Genesis 9, verse 1 to 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hands they are delivered. Every moving things that Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me And the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and my bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So now we're going to go to 1 Samuel 8, 7 to 18. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants." 
He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Kingdoms and COVID-19. Vaccine and booster mandates in the Northern Territory. The religious discrimination bill. Freedom protests. Trucker convoys in Canada. A society that is increasingly moving away from Christian ethics in many areas. How should a Christian respond? Is there such a thing as a Christian response? They say you should never talk about two things. Religion and politics. Because we've just finished preaching through James and he exhorted us throughout the book to consider trials of many kinds to be pure joy, I decided that I want to do both at once. Perhaps you have some pretty firm opinions about what a Christian should do in our current climate, in the, wake of, in the face of all of these challenges and political issues that we are facing. Maybe you're unsure and want to know what the right view of government and how we, how we respond to it as Christians is. My aim this morning is to give us a biblical overview of what the Bible says about government and how we as Christians ought to think and act in response to them. Now, by no means do I assume that I'll be able to say everything that needs to be said uh, on the matter, but I hope that this exploration will give us some key foundational biblical principles to work with as we talk about these things. Now, if you're new and you're visiting uh, our church this morning, this is a departure from what we normally do, which is to take a passage of Scripture and seek to explain it and apply it to our lives. And it seems to us like uh, it was worth doing a more topical sermon on this, given recent events and their impact on us as a local church. So that's what we're going to do, and uh, we will be moving through different passages of Scripture. Let me encourage you, if you've got a notebook, to just write those down and just continue to try and stick with me. Uh, there are different times where we will camp in a few passages, and I'll let you know when you can turn to those, and that's what we're going to be doing. Well, this morning we're going to look through... Uh, these issues, this topic, through three headings. The first is kingdoms within a kingdom. The second, anticipating the kingdom. And thirdly, living in the kingdoms. Point one, kingdoms within a kingdom. Two, anticipating the kingdom. Three, living in the kingdoms. So the first, kingdoms within a kingdom. Now, the purpose of this section is to give you a biblical theological overview of kingdoms. Now, kids who are with us again this morning, do any of you know of any kingdoms that are currently like existing on earth today? Anyone? One that's like actually a kingdom. Parents, you can help them if you like. Yeah? Animal kingdom. Hey, that's, uh, that's clever. 
Not what I was going for, but clever. I appreciate that. Anyone else? Nope. Any adults got any suggestions? What was that? Greece. Oh, British. The British Kingdom. Yeah, the United Kingdom. Any others? Saudi Arabia. They are the exact two I had as examples. Now, when I talk about kingdoms this morning, a lot of the time, we will be talking about actual kingdoms in that sense. But most of what I'm saying will also refer to any kind of government in society. So in Australia, for example, we're talking about people uh, like the Prime Minister and other members of Parliament, the governing authorities. And you're probably aware of key texts that people love to wheel out in these discussions, such as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Now, I will come to those texts later, but in order to put them in a biblical context, I hope to trace the theme of kingdoms and, and some of the key points that Scripture makes about them. In the same way that a, you know, that a random photo makes more sense when put in the larger context, such passages also make more sense in the larger context of the Bible. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here's the first thing to note. And the Bible wastes no time in telling us this. Everything belongs to God. The earth is His. Psalm 24 would put it this way, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And Psalm 47.7 would tell us that God is the king of all the earth. And now this isn't just because God has set himself up as king. No, God is not just the king, not just the ruler of the earth, but he is also the creator of the earth. He is the one who created everything. And so because we as human beings and everything else in the universe are creatures of the Creator, we have a moral obligation that is a natural outworking of that relationship. God doesn't just demand our submission to His authority. We owe it to Him because He created us. And so when God creates Adam and Eve, He gives them what is often referred to by theologians as the creation mandate. It's also known as the covenant of works. That is, instructions about what they are to do, along with an agreement about what will happen if they obey or disobey. We read some of those instructions in Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, if you're familiar with the extremely helpful gospel presentation, Two Ways to Live, you might recognize this as the first panel in the story. That's what it looks like right there. God is king, and he commissions human beings to rule on earth as people bearing his image and who are given his authority. The order that is found in the Garden of Eden was supposed to extend to the four corners of the earth. This was their creation mandate. The things that I have shown you, given you here in this garden, multiply those, expand that throughout the whole earth. But it only takes a chapter for humanity to disobey and break the covenant of works, to fail their creation mandate. 
And as a result, sin enters into the world. And as those of us who are reading this story, who are hearing this story, we think to ourselves, how can human beings now be saved from their sin? And God would plant the seed of that salvation by promising in Genesis 3.15 that a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And as the story of humanity continues, he would reveal more and more and more of that plan with each next step. And the next step would be when humankind eventually reaches its lowest point many generations later during the life of Noah. The wickedness of humankind was so great that God floods the earth and He destroys all human life, but He graciously chooses to spare Noah and his family. Now, I give you all of that context because, importantly, once God brings Noah and his family safely back to land, He makes another covenant with him, which extends to all of humankind in Genesis 9. The one that we read just before. And why does God do this? Why does he make a new covenant with Noah? Well, firstly, because the covenant of works that God made with Adam and his offspring, it no longer offers offers the promises of the Garden of Eden reaching to the four corners of the earth. Our first parents disobeyed, and the curses of the covenant are now passed on to all the people. But the blessings of it are now cut off from the rest of humanity. So God makes a new covenant with Noah and his offspring here at the dawn of another new beginning. We read it earlier, so I won't read it again, but let me point out to you some key features that are relevant to our topic today. The first thing to note is in verses 8 to 10... God makes this covenant with Noah and his sons and all of their offspring, as well as all the creatures of the earth. So this covenant is being made with all people downstream of Noah and his sons. And that includes us. And so God makes this covenant with every person from Noah to us, every single person that has lived in between those two time points. And he says, and what he has to say applies to every person in that group. And this refers to all that he says in verses 1 to 17. So notice how God's terms in the covenant of works to Adam and Eve are echoed here in in the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. Verses 1, 2, and 7 sound very much like Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. But do you notice something different between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9? You see, these these instructions, these terms of the covenant are now given in the context of fear and dread. In a post-fall world, there is a cloud that hangs over the earth. The effect of Adam and Eve's disobedience has spread to all of creation and not just in our inherited sinfulness, but also in our broken societies and our broken interactions 
with one another. God's covenant with Noah now institutes civil authority. He gives Noah and through him all people terms about how to treat each other by which they must abide. There are three instructions in verses 4 to 7. One, do not eat animals that are still alive or eat animals with their blood. Number two, if any beast or any person kills another person, that person's life shall be taken as a reckoning. Three, be fruitful and multiply. All three of these have implications for us, and each of which could probably be a sermon on their own. The latter two will be more significant later, but for now, I'll touch on all three briefly. So for the first one, kids... Let me ask you something. Can you think of any food or any, any dish where you eat the animal while it's still alive? Or if you can't think of that, can you think of any dish where the, the blood of the animal is still in it? Anyone? Oh. Lamb. Hey, you know how mum cooks it. What comes to mind for me uh, is octopuses that are eaten alive in Japan or, and Korea and probably other places. You may or may not have heard of it. Go and look it up on YouTube. It is wild. Or, also, there is a Filipino dish called dinuguan, which is meat cooked in pig's blood. So that's what comes to mind for me. Now, I hear it's, it's not as bad as it seems. But I cannot tell you from first-hand experience as to whether it's good or not. <laughs> Perhaps closer to home in the West, rare steaks might come to mind, usually a little blood dripping out of that, or perhaps blood sausages. I don't know how familiar that is to Australians, but some in the West. Now, I'm going to leave that conversation for another time as to whether that is something that still applies to us or not, whether you're allowed to go and have live octopuses in Korea. But the main point to grasp here is that God is emphasizing that an animal's life is in its blood. And that point will later prepare the way for the sacrificial system in Israel, where God emphasizes that the life of an animal is in its blood, such as in Leviticus 17.11. And that point actually connects all of the instructions. It's not just an animal's life that is in the blood, it is also a human being's. In the second command of the covenant, of the Noahic covenant, to take another person's life is to shed their blood, as we see in verse 6. In this command, God establishes the principle of reckoning for human life in societies. The life of a human being made in God's image is so sacred that for an animal or a human being to take it is a crime that deserves the highest punishment of death. We see God give more specific instructions about how this plays out in the law that he gives to the people of Israel with the same foundational principle in place. You can read about those in Exodus 21. God gives societies here... Authority to restrain evil in the taking of lives for those who have committed murder. 
So if a member of our society murders someone else, it is murder. But if the governing authorities then take the murderer's life as the penalty for that murder, then that is justice. Now, there's much more to be said about that, not least the fact that societies often do not carry this out well at all. But for now, it's important to recognize that God establishes this principle in all human societies. And finally, the third instruction that God gives is also connected to life. Be fruitful and multiply. God reinstates it here with Noah in this new covenant after the fall and after humankind has been kicked out of Eden. And this is the opposite side of the second command. Not only are societies to make sure that human beings do not take other human beings' lives, but they're also to ensure that the creation of new life and the establishment of the family flourishes. Once again, some implications here that could be a sermon in itself. I appreciate that one of the things that our world is concerned about is the impact of human activity and potentially too many human beings on the planet. As with others, I'll leave that for another conversation, but I think it is worth mentioning that at the very least, Christians are those who encourage the creation and multiplication of children and families. And I don't think that has to be at odds with establishing a a sustainable stewardship of the earth. In this covenant with Noah and through him all humankind, God charges us to be obedient to these three things. And in so doing, he gives human societies the responsibility and the power to protect human life, to restrain evil, and to ensure the flourishing of the family. The rainbow in the clouds isn't just God's promise not to destroy the earth with the flood again. It is also a reminder of these obligations, of these terms of the covenant and these responsibilities that he has given to all people in all societies everywhere. And they apply to every people, tribe or nation, regardless of what system of government they have. And so if everybody in this room, if we all decided that we wanted to move to a small island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and it was just us, and the world was happy to ignore us and let us do whatever we wanted. Now, whether we chose to you know, appoint a king or queen, whether we chose to decide that by jousting or sword fighting, whatever, or by democratic vote, whether we decided to have a completely different system, regardless, we would still be bound by the Noahic covenant and how God instructs us to govern ourselves in it. And that brings us to the next step of God's unfolding story of salvation. You see, God continues to reveal His plan by calling out a people to Himself. This begins with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. And it continues with Moses, through whom He delivers them out of Egypt And he enters into another covenant with ethnic Israel, who would later become the nation of Israel. 
And that covenant carries within it additional laws and additional signs that mark them out as his treasured possession of all the peoples on earth. These laws and signs that were given to the people of Israel were unique to them. So one of those signs, for example, that you might be familiar with is circumcision. God didn't require every other nation or people group of the world at the time to have their males circumcised. It was only something specific for Israel. And so this introduces the fact that even though all people owe their allegiance to God as king overall, and they are bound to the terms of the Noahic covenant, this covenant with the people of Israel... It binds them to him as their king in a special and a unique way. His kingship over them came with more terms and more laws to follow. And so much of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy, they contain these terms and these laws of these covenants. Israel was supposed to be a shadow of the eternal kingdom to come. God's good, everlasting kingdom. But as we know, and as we read earlier in 1 Samuel 8, one of the saddest moments in the Bible is when they instead chose to reject their king. They rejected the creator as their king. And as God would make clear in the next part of that chapter, the king that they ask for and other kings after him would rule with an iron fist. And yet this king would now have the responsibility and the authority that God himself has given to him in the Noahic covenant to carry out its terms of protecting human life, restraining evil, And ensuring the flourishing of the family. But as God has already done before in what we've seen, even the great sins of his people, he turns towards his good ends and his good purposes. Even though every Israelite king from Saul onwards and every other king in the world from Noah to now has never ruled perfectly, And has only proven God right about what kings do. Through Israel's king, God foreshadows how his kingdom will be a good one. In God's dealings with Israelite kings, he foreshadows how Christ, the king of all kings, will be the one who rules perfectly. We see glimpses of this in 2 Samuel 7 in God's covenant with David which is a shadow that points forward to the substance of Christ, that better king and his better kingdom. And all of this, it serves to show how God is progressively revealing with each step what his coming kingdom in Christ is going to look like. And so it is unsurprising to us when Jesus comes on the scene. The Magi from the east, they know who he is when they call him the king of the Jews in Matthew 2.2. And begins to talk a lot about the kingdom 
Nathanael recognizes him as the king in John 1.49. And of course, Jesus himself talks a lot about the kingdom. Mark 1.15 is one of my favorite examples. But do you notice now that there's a difference between what you would normally think of as a kingdom and what that means and how a king rules and what Jesus means by that. In John 3, he says that you can only enter the kingdom by being spiritually reborn. He also says that his kingdom is not a worldly one in John 18. It is not of this earth. And not only that, his kingdom is marked by characteristics that seem upside down. Just look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And instead of being a king who charges in on his war horse to take the city of Jerusalem, no, instead he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Instead of attempting to ascend the throne of Caesar in the Roman Empire, he ascends the hill of Golgotha and is crowned with a crown of thorns. The kingdom of Jesus is not of this earth. It is not of this world. And it will continue on long after the kingdoms of this earth have fallen. In the age to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, it is Jesus' kingdom that will be the last one standing. Every other kingdom you can think of, every other kingdom that there is to come, they will all pass away. And that's a crucial thing for us to make sure that we grasp. If all of your thinking about the government and all of the things that you think with regard to how we interact with it and what Christians should do in response to it, does not have this as a rock-solid confidence in the kingdom of Christ, then it is missing a cornerstone piece. Is Christ's kingdom the one that you ultimately pledge allegiance to? The reason this first point is called kingdoms within a kingdom is because the kingdoms of this world that we live in and that we submit to in the here and now, they are not the highest authority in our lives. So kids, in the same way that your parents have higher authority over you than your friends, so God's kingdom has higher authority over us more than any other earthly kingdom. And if we were ever asked to bow down to them as though they were gods, or told to consider their authority as higher than gods, then like Daniel and his friends, were, just like they were told to do, then like them, we have no other choice but to say that we bow to a greater king. Any discussion that we have about civil government must have this recognition of the king of kings and his eternal kingdom at its core. Because at the end of this age, only his will remain. And that brings us to our second point. Anticipating the kingdom. 
anticipating the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not just the message of salvation and the call to a, a kingdom way of life in the here and now. It certainly is those things. But his kingdom will reach its final fulfillment in the age to come. It's often known as the consummation of his kingdom. And that age will begin. His kingdom will be consummated when Jesus comes again. You see evidence of this all over the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. But perhaps the clearest example is Revelation 21, where John describes the new heavens and the new earth. God's plan, you see, is not just making Eden great again, but it is renewing creation in such a way that it can be called a new heavens and a new earth. And there's a crucial thing to note about this kingdom. Not only is God sitting on the throne and is the source of light and life, but it has a clearly marked out citizenship. It is made up of the righteous those who have received the righteousness of Christ by faith and who will go from being declared righteous to being glorified with Him in perfected, purified, resurrection bodies. The righteousness that we have in Christ today will become righteousness that we have and own in our bodies, our glorified, resurrected bodies. And the unrighteous, those who have rejected Christ, will be thrown out. Again, you see this in various places in the New Testament, but it's highlighted in Revelation 21, verses 8 and 27. Those who have rejected Christ and not received His salvation and not been washed clean by His blood, they are and will be outside the city walls. Christ's kingdom the kingdom which has begun and is here now, found among His people, is heading towards a final destination where His kingdom will reign forever. I don't know about you, but I love just singing that over and over again when we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. His kingdom lives forever. Is that, is that the words? Something like that. His kingdom lives forever. It does now and it will. Brothers and sisters, knowing how the story ends changes how you act now. If you knew that no matter what happens to you in this life, you will literally or metaphorically, there's a bit of debate about that, be walking on streets of gold in Christ's kingdom. How do you think that might affect the way that you live today? If you know that you are headed for an everlasting existence in a new creation where there's not even any need for the sun because God himself will be the light, does that not shift how you live and what you put your hope in today? Because if it doesn't, then it should. How much of our anxiety about life today can be traced back to a lack of this, of this eternal perspective? How much of our worries about COVID, about religious freedom, about societal unrest is birthed from blinkered vision that blinds us from seeing the wide vistas of God's eternal landscape? Verse 
how much of our hope in changing government laws is a result of not recognizing Christ and his kingdom that is here and that will be consummated and completed and go on into eternity. Before we say anything else about how a Christian should think and interact with the politics of their day, we must always recognize and remember that His kingdom has begun now and it will live forever. This is a fundamental truth and a hope that our lives ought to be built on. How can you brothers and sisters, continue to live out the rest of your days, however many God gives you, whatever it is that they look like, wherever it is, in whatever kingdom it is on this earth, anchored in this eternal hope. With that in mind, we move on to our final point. Do not be deceived by the word final. As we've seen from God's covenant with Noah and through the different phases of God's unfolding revelation, we recognize that all earthly kingdoms ultimately have been given authority by God to protect human life, to restrain evil, and to ensure the flourishing of humanity and of the family. And with the coming of Jesus and the eternal covenant of grace that is in him, God reveals this final step, the one that all the steps have been uh, <laughs> pointing to of his plan of salvation, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ. And so we recognize that as Christians, even though we have a passport to an earthly kingdom throughout our lives, our true citizenship both here and in eternity, is in Christ's kingdom. And our passport into Christ's kingdom is the real one. Kids, do any of you have a passport yet? Put your hand up. Yeah, got a few, great. I brought mine, but I left it in my bag. So let's pretend I'm holding it up. Did you realize, not just kids, but adults, that whenever you travel overseas and show your passport at customs at the border, that you're actually showing them a fake passport? You're a regular Jason Bourne. Don't believe me? Listen to how Peter and Paul talk about followers of Christ. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And Paul in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And we are simply passing through this world, passing through this life. Now, of course, in a sense, I'm joking when I say that your passport is fake, all right? 
You're not going to get taken by the FBI when you visit the US. But I hope it causes you to think about where your true citizenship lies. Yes, we might be citizens of this nation, the, the kingdom of Australia, if you will. But that kingdom is temporary. And comparing it or any other earthly kingdom to Christ's eternal kingdom, when he finally comes, is like comparing the majesty of your backyard to that of Kakadu. There's no comparison. Christ's kingdom is far greater and will outlast any other. And brothers and sisters, not only are you a citizen, you are a royal priest, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 2. And that same language is used in Revelation 1, 5 to 6, where John describes us as a kingdom and as priests. So what does this mean? Well, it means that as we await the final coming of Christ's kingdom and the glorification and the resurrection of our own bodies, we live in obedience to Him in the here and now. And we do so in increasing measures. Now, this has several implications. And I will name three of them that are relevant to our current circumstances and our topic. You can consider these as subpoints of how we live in Christ's kingdom. So the first is live God's way. Firstly and foremostly, living in the kingdom means we live according to the way God calls us to live. We have turned away from the kings and the things and the sins of this world. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. You are you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were once in the, in the prince of the power of the air's so-called kingdom. And now we are in Christ's. You can find other numerous passages talking about the same thing, as well as other passages that instruct us in the way of Christ's kingdom. And you know, increasingly, it is a life that makes little sense to fallen humanity. Matthew 5 is, as I mentioned before, another great example of this, especially the Beatitudes. Look in verses uh, 3 and 10 where Jesus actually calls blessed those that we naturally would not consider to be blessed. And he refers to how, they are, how the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So you see, throughout the Bible, God gives us instructions on how we are to live as citizens of his kingdom. In the here and now, by God's grace, a citizen of God's kingdom lives God's way. And secondly, we live in the kingdoms by living with fellow citizens. You see, importantly, living in the kingdom means we are not solo citizens. Becoming a citizen of Christ's kingdom doesn't put you in a literal or metaphorical island. No, God has saved you into a royal priesthood, into a holy nation, into a people 
who are his treasured possession. And that kingdom, which we are royal priests in, that kingdom which is coming, the one that every Christian throughout history in every place has been looking forward to, The one that will unite us with our brothers and sisters from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from the Americas, from here in Oceania, from even those in Antarctica. That kingdom, each one of the millions or the billions of believers look forward to that kingdom knowing that we will worship him together in eternity. That kingdom, it has local outposts in the here and now, in the local church. Brothers and sisters, this is why it is so essential for us to ensure that we do everything we possibly can to walk through our disagreements and difficulties together in the local church. I'm going to focus on this for the next little bit before I even talk about how we are to respond to our governments given the current issues. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's read from verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And jump down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, I'm not about to give you a full expository sermon on this passage, even though I would like to. But I draw your attention to this passage because it is one of several in Scripture that urges us to unity in love. But I want you to notice something. Perhaps you're familiar with verse 15, where Paul encourages us to speak the truth in love. It's a verse which is commonly quoted by Christians, and rightly so. I remember John Dixon describing this as Flexing both muscles. 
He flexed the muscle of love and the muscle of truth. But have you noticed the context in which those instructions are given? You see, it can be easy for us to hear those catchwords, but not give a whole lot of thought as to what they mean or how we seek to achieve it. Paul describes in verses 2 to 3 the kind of temperament and attitude that we should have towards one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You get the sense that this is the kind of love that Paul is speaking of that we are to show to one another. And yet this doesn't come naturally to us in our day and age, does it? Ours is an era, it is a temperament, and it is a culture of self-justifying moral outrage. One of proudly assuming that we always have the high moral ground, that we are correct, and that we have the right to cancel and attack those that we know are wrong. Right? Brothers and sisters... Do such attitudes sneak in from the world through the back door of your heart in your relationships, especially towards those in your church? Notice that in verse 11, Paul names the various gifts of those in the church who are given for the building up of the body of Christ. But how? How do they build up? To what end are they building up the body? Look at verse 13 to 14. You see, unity here is found not in immaturity, but in maturity. Unity is found not in a decreasing knowledge of the Son of God, but in an increasing knowledge of the Son of God. And so this is why, as you've heard me say many times in the pulpit, and I'm sure you've heard from our elders in conversation as well, that we don't assume that we know everything there is to know about God. Nor do we assume that you can reach a point in your Christian walk in life where you have attained all the knowledge of the Son of God that you will ever need. And so we always invite you to speak to us and to ask us and to challenge us about the things that we teach from God's Word. When we are in error, we desire to be corrected. Now, yes, there is maturity and there is immaturity, spiritual immaturity, spiritual maturity in this life. That's why elders or deacons are meant to be people who display spiritual maturity in their lives that show that they are not easily tossed to and fro by the waves and every wind of doctrine. So you can anticipate that an elder is somebody who has generally considered these things to a significant degree. But, as, but for Christians, unity is attained through an increasingly united faith in and knowledge of the Son of God. And that is something that the whole church continues to strive together towards. We keep going. We keep pursuing truth in love. 
And that's the point of verses 15 and 16. We speak the truth in love, and love seeks growth in truth. Once again, this is so important in our current culture where the new tolerance sees any kind of disagreement as hateful. The new tolerance says that, well, if you don't agree with me, you must hate me. And the only way that we can actually like one another or even love one another is if you agree with what I think. And in our current church culture, which more often than not seeks unity, not in pursuing maximum agreement in truth, but instead in minimum agreement and in the labeling of disagreements as irrelevant. It is so crucial for us to grasp this. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask you, are you flexing both muscles? Or are you like Rafael Nadal, whose left arm is quite obviously larger than his right arm? I apologize for the shirtless photo, but it was the one that most clearly made the point and I think wasn't photoshopped. But that's true. You watch him play, you'll see that his left arm is significantly larger. When it comes to these conversations, brothers and sisters, about mandates, about religious freedom, do you form your opinions and your thoughts on them in a vacuum on your own, reading stuff online, and then you just prepare your arguments to just smash them over the net at everybody at church when you come into contact with them? Where is the love for your brothers and sisters in that kind of interaction? Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have a well-informed opinion on these things. I hope you do. I hope to learn from it. And actually, to swing in the opposite direction would be to exchange Rafael Nadal for another record-breaking tennis champion in Serena Williams, whose right arm is noticeably bigger than her left. To do that would be to say, hey, guys, we all love each other, and there are issues that we don't need to make a big deal of, and at the end of the day, all that matters is that we love Jesus. Aside from the fact that that does not build up the body of Christ to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but this is an issue that has significantly divided the church. And it pains me to see that many have been tossed to and fro by the waves and winds of doctrine, forgetting that Christ's kingdom is far above any other kingdom. It pains me to see brothers and sisters in Christ placing more hope and being more concerned about earthly kings than the king of kings. Which arm of yours requires more work in the Holy Spirit gym? Perhaps you need to spend 
more time praying for and speaking with your brothers and sisters in Christ so that you don't treat them as though they are just another voice on Twitter that you can just happily laugh at and dismiss. Doing so just might help you see the reasons why they hold the views that they do. And at the very least, it will remind you that this is a person for whom Christ died, whom God has placed in your local body to love and to build up, and that they are not just a person or thing who has views that you disagree with. Perhaps you need to consider your own opinions on some of, some of these things and reevaluate whether you have good reasons to hold them or not. Are you seeking to form your opinions and your thoughts on these things in pursuit of greater faithfulness to God's truth? Is that the baseline desire that you have? Or are you more concerned about the relational effect of the views you hold, whether that is in being able to superior, be superior to those who have views not as enlightened as yours, or perhaps being concerned that you're going to be the weirdo and that everyone's going to cast you out. Brothers and sisters, even though our current COVID conversation gives us a good opportunity to assess where we are at in flexing the muscles of speaking the truth and doing so in love, I hope and pray that this would be true of all things that we speak about in the life of our church and especially things that are controversial. And before we move on to talk about COVID, I want us to pause on this point of how we interact with one another. We're going to take this opportunity to reflect on how being a citizen of Christ's kingdom shapes our own lives and our life together. And we're going to do so by singing, living for your glory and may the mind of Christ. Mark will then lead us in a prayer before Lauren reads us a couple of passages, and then we will continue with the final sub-point. So as we do, let me ask you to consider, how might the Holy Spirit be speaking to you through His Word this morning in this? All right. Our next passage is Romans 13, 1 to 7. So if you can turn there in your Bibles. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that, ex have ex those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of your conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Now we turn to our next and final reading. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 to 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Thank you, Lauren. Well, thirdly and finally, we live in the kingdom by living under God's authorities. Living under God's authorities. In many ways, this is what I assume many of us would have anticipated would have been the main substance of this sermon. But I hope that as I've gone through the context of that, that we view these uh, in that much broader um, setting of biblical truth. Now, kids, tell me, when you play a game like Cops and Robbers... Which do you prefer to be, the cop or the robber? The cop. Yeah. yeah, Nods over here in the corner. Vigorous nods. Yes, you should be the cop. Yeah. Well, this chapter uh, and and this, the passages that we have just right read uh, are where this, (laughs) sorry, this point is where these passages that we've just read finally come into play. How do we respond to and live under the authorities that God has placed over us? Is there a submissive or a rebellious streak in you? I hope that as I've briefly, briefly given all the background of Scripture in this and traced the biblical theology of God's kingdom up until this point, uh, that we would not read these as simple blanket commands that can be applied however it suits us best. And perhaps the most important piece of background information to these passages specifically is that we need, uh, that we need is knowing that the Jews of this time They were treated with suspicion by Rome. So only about a decade earlier of the time when Paul wrote this letter, the Jewish community had already been expelled from Rome due to their violent insurrection. And I don't know if you've heard that term recently, but I am using it in the true sense of the word. The Jews violently rebelled several times leading up to the time of Jesus. And so the tension between the Jews and the Romans was high. It had happened, it had been building over a number of centuries. And so it's no surprise that Rome eventually destroyed Jerusalem only a few decades later in 70 AD. 
And so Christians, this early in the game, they were considered to be just another subset or another denomination of Judaism. And so they were viewed with the same amount of suspicion. Not only that, their leader was also known to have been crucified under Pontius Pilate. And so when that is the reputation that you have in the, in the community of your belief, your religion, that is not a good start to the whole movement. And we even see this in Jesus' own life, don't we? When he said to Pilate in John 18 that if his kingdom was of this world, then his followers would try to seek and bring it about through violent means. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't saying that hypothetically. He had already had some people try and do exactly that in John 6, 15. And he resisted it. And so Paul is reminding his Roman readers that seeking to take earthly power is not the way of Christ. Just look at what Paul has to say immediately before Romans chapter 13. Repay no one evil for evil. Live at peace with all. Leave vengeance to God. If your enemy is hungry, feed him, care for him. Just listen to those imperatives. Paul is already showing that the way of Christ is not one where we seek earthly power in earthly kingdoms. And now that doesn't mean that a Christian cannot be in politics. To work in a governing authority where it is possible for a Christian to attain that, like in Australia, can be a good and godly pursuit. But the point is that we are not to seek to take what Paul in Romans 13 calls the sword by force. Christians do not try to take the sword by force. That is that authority to do what the Noahic covenant gives governments the, the power to do. Jesus Himself says to Peter when he tried to wield the sword in Matthew 26, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That is Paul's main point. Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, is not an earthly one that can be obtained by force. Jesus does not conquer with armies and with battalions and with weaponry. And that is why we are called to be in a subjection to governing authorities. Governing authorities are instituted by God and given for our good in order to praise those who do good and to punish those who do evil, as Peter would put it. And as authorities under the Noahic covenant, two of their primary responsibilities, as we saw, are to protect life by restraining evil and to ensure the flourishing of the family. So when we see the government doing this, when we see them creating laws that do this or work towards this, then we should be obedient to them and thank them and praise God for them. Our default position, our baseline posture towards governing authorities, according to these texts, is one of submission. Perhaps you've heard of John MacArthur who made headlines a year or two ago for disobeying government directions. He's a senior pastor of a rather large church in California. And he disobeyed government directions to, to keep gatherings locked down. And he opened his church to the, the whole church. And, you know, we're pretty loose with mandates and things like that, with mask wearing and that sort of thing. 
Now, given that action, you might think that he belongs with the insurrectionists. But you might be surprised to find that he writes this in his commentary on Romans 13. The logical ramification is simple. Because civil government is an institution of God, to rebel against government is to rebel against the God who has established it. A few years ago, in an interview with Ben Shapiro, he said this, I'm to be a citizen who submits to the powers that be. I am not to be a revolutionary. We don't start riots. That's not a Christian thing to do. We don't start revolutions. We submit to the powers that be, and we work to change the culture from the inside, one soul at a time. As far as it depends on us, Christians ought to be model, upstanding citizens who seek to change the culture and shift society from the inside out. This is a logical extension of the Christian ethic, isn't it? We love our neighbors through radical self-sacrifice and through the laying down of our rights. And that ought to be seen in our eagerness to do what is right in society. This makes sense of another shorter instruction about governing authorities that Paul gives to Timothy. We pray and we thank God for kings and those in positions of authority. And we do it for what reason? Well, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And why is that important? Well, you just look at the next verses. It's good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Father who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see the connection there between the way we can conduct ourselves and the way that then reflects on and adorns the gospel that we preach Are you sensing a pattern here? Again, you'll find more examples of this in Peter's letters as well. The default position of the Christian is not one of resistance to and rebellion against the government. And the reason given is so that it may please God and be the kind of life that bears witness to the goodness and glory of the gospel. Our hope in all of our actions is that our neighbors may hear the gospel and repent and believe and be saved. Consider what the officials who were out to get Daniel said about him. We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. May that also be true of us. That the only ground for complaint that people can find with us as followers of Christ is in connection with our faith. Do you think that's true of Christians in our society today? And if it isn't, which I would suggest that it isn't, why is that so? Is it true of you? Now, if you're starting to get a little bit twitchy and feeling like you're ready to head for the exit, allow me to provide some fuller context. 
As I'm sure you're aware, this becomes problematic when the governing authorities are not doing what they're supposed to do, when they are not punishing evil and doing good, and when they are not protecting life or the family. And so MacArthur himself believed it to be consistent with what he has said and written to reopen his church in defiance of government orders to remain closed. And it was consistent because they did so in a way that was still submissive to the government. They were willing to accept the consequences of their actions. But they did so because they believed what the government to be ordering was wrong. As we saw in 1 Kings 8, you can guarantee that every earthly kingdom in every place, in every time, will fail in some way, and some more than others. So what's a Christian to do? Well, the first thing is to remember your passport. Not your Australian one, or whatever nation it is. You are a citizen of a greater kingdom. In the now and not yet, as we await the coming of God's kingdom in the age to come, as we wait patiently for the day that we will see Christ face to face and his kingdom will be consummated, we live as ones whose highest authority is God. And therefore, we can say with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29, Judge for yourselves, we must obey God rather than men. But even as we make such statements, we need to remember Paul's instruction in Romans 13. So when somebody puts this verse on this flag, which says, defy tyrants. And I'm pretty sure that wasn't taken in a nation that had an actual tyrant. There is a sword grabbing tendency in that, which we as Christians ought to resist. But please don't mishear me. When the governing authorities instruct us to do something which is clearly sin, then we stand with Peter and the apostles. We serve a higher king, we say. This is outside your jurisdiction. So, for example, if the government mandated abortions for any child that you have over a certain number, which, by the way, would be a failure to keep both of those main terms and responsibilities given by God in the Noahic covenant, then we would refuse to comply. But here's the important point. We do so using all the available tools given to us as Christians in whatever society we are in, without starting a revolution. Some citizens of some societies in this world, even today, will have less tools at their disposal than what we have. But in Australia, we can advocate for change, we can vote for parties or policies that align more closely to biblical faithfulness, we can engage in civil disobedience and willingly accept the consequences or we can even flee the country, as the English Puritans did when the British Kingdom passed the Act of Uniformity in 1662. And that was over something that most of us would think was not a big deal these days. And if we run out of options and we find that we have no choice but to pay with our lives, 
as many Christians throughout the ages have had to do, then we trust the Lord's sovereignty and prepare to have our new earth passports stamped. At no point do we as Christians insist on our rights to the point of taking up arms to seize the throne. Well, you might argue, well, Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan and he did exactly that. He overthrew the king and established his own government. Well, I think Cromwell made a mistake. Unlike, as I mentioned earlier, the Puritans a decade or so after him, who chose instead to flee to Massachusetts Bay. If our only choices as followers of Christ were grasping the sword through revolution or falling under the sword, then the Christian chooses the way of King Jesus in John 18, 36. Every time. Every time. What does all this mean for our current issues? Let me offer some brief comments. Firstly, on COVID vaccine mandates or booster mandates, to read the government charitably and believe their stated purposes for them in protecting the community as well as our indigenous communities up here especially. As far as we can tell, given their decisions and what they've said, they are seeking to protect human life. This is part of what they're supposed to do under the Noahic Covenant. That said, I understand why some are getting concerned about too much government overreach and the danger of them getting comfortable with telling people how to live. The subject of vaccine passes, for example, and how they will be implemented or how they might impact us as a church. Well, there are things for us to wrestle with in that. God has commanded us in Hebrews 10, 24 or 5, that we are not to neglect gathering. And so that is an issue that we will need to face and need to discuss as a church. That might even be something that we'll discuss in our members meeting next Sunday. But we ought to be careful with such instincts of leeriness against the government. And by the way, that's, I'm telling myself that probably more than most. Because they can easily mask, pun intended, more selfish and self-interested desires. Can they not? Is it not easier to shift the problem away from ourselves and onto someone or something else? Have you considered your own heart and have you asked God to search it and to show you where there is any way in you that does not honor him as you consider these things? Now, I also appreciate that we might disagree with the government's application or, or, of recommendations from relevant scientific bodies or even with the scientific data itself. 
Again, I appreciate that. Trust me. In such circumstances, it's worth recognizing that our governments are in the unenviable position of needing to balance societal risks and societal freedoms, all the while having multiple groups of people with a wide range of differing opinions about what the right thing to do is, and often shouting those opinions at them. So we should expect that there will be times when we will disagree with their course of action, what they have chosen to do and the reasons and the data that they have applied in order to get to that decision. I can't remember who told me this, but there was a report from a Christian who, uh, through various uh, uh, whatever they were involved in, ended up being more up close and personal with government uh, authorities, with parliament. And I remember them saying that after spending more time with members of parliament and seeing the, the immense, enormous pressure that they are constantly under... It caused them to redouble their efforts to pray for our authorities. Do you pray for the government? As Paul instructed Timothy, even when it's not the party that you voted for, even when you don't like it, when you really don't like it? Kids, do you pray for the government? Have any of you ever prayed for the government? If not, you can encourage your parents to pray for the government and do so in your prayer times. If the apostles can urge believers to pray for the kings of their day who were way, way worse than the governments that we have the privilege of living under, surely we can dedicate ourselves to pray for our nation's leaders. But other than praying, what else can we do? especially, especially when governments have got it backwards and are punishing the good and praising the evil. Or being part of organizations such as the Australian Christian Lobby who seek to lobby the government to make changes to these laws is one option. Joining nonviolent protests, seeking to persuade neighbors of why such things are harmful to society, why God's God's laws and his word are good for us, regardless of whether you believe or not. These all fall under the banner of living peaceful and godly lives that amplify the gospel as citizens of this earthly kingdom. But if we start to lose that battle... If we find that the earthly kingdom is moving further away from us and becoming increasingly hostile to us, then to quote John Dixon again, Christians need to learn how to lose well. It's always tempting when you're outnumbered or when you're backed into a corner to reach for the sword or to reach for that belligerent tweet. And it is in those moments that as Christians we look to the one The one who could have called for 12 legions of angels to rescue him from the most unjust execution in human history, but did not. Jesus could have, and still could, win any earthly war he wants. But that is not the way of his kingdom. His is not an earthly, Christ, uh, earthly kingdom. 
So friends, which passport is more valuable to you? Christ's kingdom is here and it will one day be here to stay forever. The citizens of Christ's kingdom possess a deep trust in Jesus that goes beyond the outrage and the self-righteousness of our society. The citizens of Christ's kingdom have an eternal perspective that enables them to stand firm in obedience to God, calling authorities to keep the Noahic covenant, yet remain submissive to them. And that's because the citizens of Christ's kingdom wait patiently and assuredly for the consummation of it. The citizens of Christ's kingdom continue to strive for faithfulness in his kingdom because they know that they are not under a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. A covenant that has been kept for them by Christ, one that we enter into through faith in him because of his perfect obedience. The citizens of Christ's kingdom are no longer in Adam, but are in Christ. Are you a citizen of Christ's kingdom? If you aren't yet, let me urge you to consider exchanging your passport for one that will last forever. One that will not perish. One that cannot be revoked by any earthly government or any human authority. And one that grants you entry into the new creation. Brothers and sisters, as we live in the here and now, let us keep reminding ourselves of the king we love, of the king we look to, of the king we live for. And as a result, may the world see in us a kingdom that is worth dying for. How will the citizens of these earthly kingdoms know that we are royal priests in Christ's kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize the, the struggle of the now and the not yet, of living in this kingdom whilst knowing we are members of a greater one, of an eternal one, of one that will go on forever, where you are its light, where the streets are paved with gold, one that we anticipate with great joy and gladness, even as we struggle in the here and now. Lord, please help us to think rightly, and to live rightly in obedience to you in all of this. Father, as we live in these local outposts of your church, speaking the truth in love with one another, as we are salt and light in our communities, as we seek to make the gospel compelling to our neighbors, and Father, as we do so, may we always and ever look to Christ, our King, knowing that our sure hope is in and through Him. We ask this in His name. Amen.